Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 109, and we're in mid October 1901. Last week, we left General Jan Smuts and his commando as they writhed about in pain, having eaten from a plant that they failed to prepare properly and had poisoned about half of the 250 men riding with the general. Worse, they were forced to fight off a British attack on the mountains above Port Elizabeth at the same time. They had managed to escape the British cavalry and mounted infantry units, but were now deep in badlands country in the mountains of the Eastern Cape region of South Africa. They are steep-sided with deep ravines and thick bush, dotted about with thorn bushes ready to rip at the unprepared. We will return in a while to Jan Smuts, but first, other matters were coming to a head in the eastern Transvaal. General Louis Boot had been forced to retreat from northern Natal, where he had launched an invasion with 2,500 men. The British and the Zulu were waiting for this commando. Boot's invasion had been a failure. However, the British found the task of tracking and destroying Boota was also impossible. First, Boota left his wagons and resorted to high mobility, Boers on horses. Second, the British were slowed down by having to destroy the farms as they moved through that supported the Boers, and this meant drives along swamps and mountains and forests. Boota was actually succeeding in something else that was prolonging the dislocation of Kitchener's troop arrangements. The areas from which troops had been drawn were now more isolated and immediate prey for the guerrillas. Of course, Louis Boota was still highly active in the eastern Transvaal. He had rejoined the government in hiding there between the towns of Pietratief and Ermelo, but he was frustrated. In his absence, the man he had left in charge, Commandant Fulun, had been worse than useless. This was unacceptable, and Louis Boota was chomping at the bit. What could he dream up to make the British pay for their continued actions in the eastern Transvaal and make up for the vacillating Fulun? Well, it was the attack on Bachenlachter, one of the most destructive battles of this, the guerrilla phase of the war, where 167 of a unit of 200 men were wiped out. But that's for next week. I'm mentioning the battle now because Kitchener had a big problem. He was showing signs of self-doubt. And as we'll see by the end of December, he was writing strange letters to his commanding officers suggesting that he could be replaced if perceived as dysfunctional. This from the man who drove the Sudanese from Khartoum, an almost mythical moment in the annals of the British Empire war narrative. Nothing destroys confidence more effectively than an attritional war, where the medals pinned on chests mean nothing after a while, and the enemy appears invigorated by a large army wheeling about following its own tail around the felt. General de Vett in the Free State was also preparing for his next action, which was to be in November. The same too goes for General de la Rey. These men were receiving reports from Jan Smuts who was trying to motivate the Cape Afrikaners to rise up, and things, as we know, were not going too well. Yes, they had utterly pulverized Lord Vivian and his men at Ilansport, but they were then forced to run away from a planned attack on Port Elizabeth. 250 men are no match, no matter how motivated and trained, for 40,000. And those were the numbers that faced the Boers in the Eastern Cape. I narrated Denise Reitz was none the wiser to the more sanguine feelings that his commanding officer felt. General Smuts was having doubts now about the entire strategy, but he was not about to reveal this to his men. They needed to be motivated and focused. 
Smuts and his commando were so far off the beaten track in the mountains that they were surrounded by wild animals, game like buffalo, which are actually extremely dangerous on the African felt. Our film then recorded buffalo, and they charge at you in a split second. These massive animals with their tiny malevolent eyes can turn on a dime. We were now in the heart of the mountains, writes Rates. So far from any farms that buffalo were seen, and their tracks and mud wallows were frequent. Still, General Smuts was unable to ride properly, and the commander halted again. The British had also turned back from these impenetrable mountains, the Boers thought, seeking supplies before they returned, the Boers imagined. Smoke was seen rising from nearby mountains, and a scouting party reported that it was from native huts. By the time the commander rode into this village, the people had scattered, and the Boers looted what little remained, mainly stores of millet. The next day they rode south, and there, in a somewhat bizarre moment, high on a grass-covered shoulder of a mountain, they caught sight of a distant view 35 miles away of white sand dunes and a grey haze. It was the Indian Ocean. These men of the interior, the felt, had seen nothing like it for years. For most, they'd never seen the sea. We felt elated, for we knew that we had now penetrated further south than any other commander during the war, and we were the first to come within sight of the coast. It is an amazing moment. Since the start of the war, Smuts was of the belief that the Boers should take the battles to the British in their homes along the coast. They had lost their cities and towns to the British Empire, but here was a tiny commander sitting on their horses, staring in a bemused fashion at the sea. Next morning, we went down into a beautiful valley filled with yellowwood trees, centuries old, and here we camped for the rest of the day, still subsiding on boiled millet. Yellowwood trees are endemic to South Africa like the redwoods of the west coast of the USA. They are symbolic of ancient forests. Homes in South Africa are still covered with yellowwood, but it's now a protected species. The colour and even the smell of yellowwood for many South Africans shouts out, this is the smell of home, this is our wood. That night they were excited once more, for the lights of the harbour of Port Elizabeth could still be seen glimmering and flicking. One of Smuts's commander was a local, and knew of a trail that he said would take the men to the slopes near the strongly flowing Sundays River, and nearby was the English village of Bayville, which could be attacked. Denise Rates and his colleagues of the Rake section, the scouts, were ordered forward to find out more. But Rates had a problem again. His horses had scattered in the forest, and it took him an hour to find them. Meanwhile, the rest of the Rake section scouts rode off. I tracked them until they got clear of the mountains, into the wide valley, down whose centre the Sunday River runs into the sea, he wrote. But the floor of the valley was dense scrub, ten or twelve feet high, in which I got completely bushed. So Rates was blocked from making a clear track. After working his way back and forth, eventually he joined the commander, having got lost. Rates was disgusted with himself. He'd left his rake section to fend for themselves in the bush. Meanwhile, Jack Boreas and the others remained at large. The next morning, the commander led their horses between the high ranges, along a well-beaten track twisting through the valley, and lo and behold, they were at the Sunday's river. The men were excited, for they knew that the river flowed into the sea. But the ride was not going to be as simple as that. Nothing ever is in this war. General Smuts then ordered Rates, Cornelius Vermaas and Henry Rittenbach to scout up the river. We set out on what proved to be my companion's last ride.
said Rate. They were excited an hour or so later as they met black villagers who told them that there were white men on horses nearby. And moments later they came upon Jack Bodius and his detachment from the Rake section. However, as they approached they realised things had gone badly wrong. Boreas and his men had managed to enter the town of Bavel unopposed. After seizing goods and looting, they had ridden back up the trail where they fell foul of an English patrol. In the ensuing encounter, Boreas had been terribly wounded. A bullet had blown away his left eye, leaving a cavity filled with dry blood, while his right hand was smashed to pulp. He refused to be left behind despite his agony. We found him in great pain, said Rates but determined to remain with the commander. Remember, at this point, the Boers were still dressed in English uniforms. Rates and the others of the commando did not know that in war, if you are caught wearing the enemy's uniform, you will be shot immediately as a spy. Rates jumped off his horse to help his old friend. Moments later, Jan Smuts rode into the glade with his commando. He ordered Ben Kutsir to take over command of the rake section from the wounded Boreas and then to head off to reconnoitre down a parallel valley. They were heading towards the lower Sunday's Valley. Smuts was not giving up. This would, however, be the death knell for part of the rake section, who were always in more danger than the main commander, because they rode out as scouts. Ben Kutsir didn't waste time. He chose Rittenbach, Fremas, Van Onselen and Reitz to join him. The five went ahead down the valley, carefully picking their way. Eventually, they reached a dead end, up against what they took to be the final range of the Zierbergen. Zierbergen means sour mountains, and shortly it would live up to its name. Kutsir kept Van Onselen with him and sent Reitz, Fermas and Rubenbach to climb the mountain ahead and to see what was on the other side. As we began to lead our horses up the slope, we heard a shout, and Van Onselen overtook us with a message to say that I was to return. Reitz's horses had been stumbling, and Kutsir was now worried that he would hold them up as they climbed the mountain. Van Onselen took his place. That saved his life. On reaching the top, the three members of the rake section rode slap-bang into an English force lying in wait. No shots were initially fired until the British discovered the Boers were wearing their uniforms, and then all three were executed immediately out of hand. We only knew of their actual fate long afterwards, for the moment we all heard was a burst of firing and looked up saw large numbers of soldiers on the skyline, so we rode back along the valley, full of anxiety. Smuts knew he could not continue, the English force was too powerful, so he ordered a halt for the night. At daybreak the next morning, while we were saddling our horses, the troops opened fire from above our heads. No one was hit, but the Boers were forced to retreat into a deeper part of the Zierbergen. Three members of the commando went missing, searching for their horses and were discovered by the English. One of these was hanged as a rebel British subject. He was from the Cape. Smuts's commander was being reduced a man at a time. Worse, they had no idea that Kitchener had sent notice to all British forces to execute any Boers wearing their uniforms. I went about wearing Lord Vivian's khaki tunic with regimental badge and buttons and the 17th Lancer's skull and crossbones in my hat, not a little proud of my well-earned trophies, and never dreaming that I was under the sentence of death. Well, he had escaped execution, but how many more times would he survive? Smuts had now turned inland, away from the sea, and they were riding slowly up a pass that ran up a dark ravine flanked with dense timber and heavily overgrown. They were riding north, directly opposite their goal.
Now they were heading back to the Karoo. It was a sad moment. With the English column of that morning pressing steadily in our rear, we had to go wherever there was an opening. They ascended the pass, nervous that another British column awaited at the summit. They were lucky. There was a loophole. No troops waited as they crested the rise. But there was something that awaited. A human skeleton on the desolate trail. Rates and fellow scout Edgar Dunker then placed the grinning skull on a log facing back down the trail so that the English would see it as they emerged. A warning to their pursuers. It is almost Halloween, so this macabre gesture seems to make some kind of sense. The Day of the Dead, as it's more formally known, or El Dia de los Muertos, excuse the pronunciation, is a Mexican holiday where families welcome back the souls of their deceased relatives for a brief reunion that includes food and drink. The spiritual journey that Rates was taking was laced with menace and violence. His long ride across the plains and forests and deserts of southern Africa was never-ending. Two years of riding, two years of death. Smuts was still struggling with a food poisoning incident. Many others were weak. They made a mistake. The wounded, including Jack Borius, with his mangled face and shattered hand, needed to stop. They looked down the mountain and far below saw the English had also dismounted and seemed to be content to light fires for a late lunch. Then some half-savage cattle came out of the woods and we shot several and had the added satisfaction of eating our fill around big fires. The meal and warmth lulled Smuts and his men into a false sense of security. They slept. By five in the afternoon, Rates was awake and joined his friend Nicholas Swart and leader Ben Kutsir, sitting with their backs against the steep wall of the trail, looking downwards just in case. Suddenly, while we were talking, we saw the foremost ranks of a body of horsemen appear at the head of the gorge, not a hundred yards away. Rates shouted in alarm at the commando, then the three opened fire on the English. The riding party was an advance guard of thirty or so, and also appeared to be surprised, obviously thinking that the Boers had continued down the other side of the mountain, instead of halting at the summit. It shows how tired and ill Smuts must have been to have made such a basic mistake. No proper defensive network was thrown up as they rested, and no scouting was taking place to keep an eye on the English. The riding party was now trying to turn their horses on that terribly narrow trail, with the one side marked with a sheer drop and the other the side of the mountain that was too steep to climb. They poured down this causeway in disorder. They seemed to be boring and pushing each other frantically under our fire, horses and men toppling over the edge of the road and crashing into the timber beneath. The road became obstructed with dead and wounded horses. Only a handful of men reached the bottom, the rest abandoned their animals and took cover in the forest, firing back at the Boers. That stopped Rates and his friends from dashing out of cover to grab the ammunition and other material lying on the trail left by the routed English. It's unclear how many men were killed or wounded on the English side. Rates never found out. As darkness fell, Smuts's commando made their way down the far side of the mountain on a road known as Sir Harry Smith's Road. Sir Harry Smith was a hero of the Napoleonic Wars, as well as being present at the burning of Washington, D.C. during the War of 1812. And he had been instrumental in building a British presence in the Eastern Cape region of South Africa after 1828. He is loathed today by the majority of South Africans as a man who oversaw raids into the territory of the Kaleka, a Kozo group east of the Kai River, and whose forces committed grave human rights violations. 
However, he's also known as a man who built this twisted road up a gorge in the Sunday's River Valley, amongst other feats of infrastructure. Harry Smith returned to the Cape, by the way, in 1847 as Governor and High Commissioner, and it was his act of annexing the territory of the Orange Free State sovereignty that led to the Battle of Boomplatz in August 1848. The Boers lost the battle, but Smith provoked a second war in 1850 with the Kosa residing in the region known as the Kaiskama near the Fish River, also in the Eastern Cape, and close to where Smuts was now riding. If you remember, rates had also stopped at the memorial at Boomplatz months before, so this road appeared serendipitous. As for Harry Smith, the British government was alarmed by his warmongering, and he was recalled after the costly Cape Frontier Wars of 1850-1853. His wife, however, was called Ladysmith, and was honoured by the name of the town called Ladysmith in Natal, as I explained in our first few podcasts. And as we know, Ladysmith was one of the besieged towns of the early phase of the Anglo-Boer War, an extremely important moment. Meanwhile, Smuts had come to a momentous decision. It was time to split his force. That of course meant his initial attack on the Indian Ocean ports had failed. It was time to change tactics. As soon as it was light, we halted at the farm for a few hours, and here General Smuts called us together. From now on, he was going to head northwestly towards the Atlantic seaboard. He wanted Van Deventer to lead the other half of his force. He was splitting it for another reason. The 250-strong commander had been whittled down by a few, but were proving too difficult to feed. It would also throw off the English columns, who were in hot pursuit. Both units would operate independently of each other as they rode westward and then meet up at the Atlantic seaboard at a future date. As we'll see, however, making their way through the semi-deserts and brutal rocky mountains that awaited was going to be hard. So we have to halt right now. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps those folks at Apple take our little story more seriously. And thanks again to all the people for sending me advice and support. You can also send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham or an email through our website abwarpodcast.com. In recent weeks, by the way, a large number of listeners has emerged in Spain. So welcome, Buenvenido. <laughs> Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Oh, bring me back now.